Welcome to Marketing with Walker and Grimm, the show about marketing and advertising specifically targeted for those of us in central Pennsylvania. I'm John Walker, and when I'm not doing podcasts, I serve as the digital marketing director at LMP Media Group. And I'm Marcus Grimm. I'm the vice president of market growth and innovation at Benchmark Construction. We are thrilled to have you back to this show, the second one that we've done with a guest. So, John, I want to start with a question for you. You ready? All right, shoot. When I say the word economist, what do you think of? Um, well, let's see, maybe somebody who knows a lot about numbers, uh, somebody who likes graphs, uh, maybe tweed jacket, something like that. Somebody maybe a little boring. A little boring? Well, you know what, John? That's what I thought too. And yet today's guest is going to turn that stereotype right on its head. Now, wait, you're telling me you brought an economist on the show. I don't remember agreeing to that. John, I didn't bring just an economist. I brought the newest economists to Lancaster on the show. So, so uh, people who follow what's going on at the EDC, the, the, the Lancaster EDC, uh, about two years ago said, hey, we want to get an economist on staff, which is a pretty bold thing uh, for the EDC to say what they want to do. And John, as I've shared with you, I'm a little bit nerdy about uh, economics, and I love the Freakonomics blog and the books and the, and the podcast. And so I have been paying attention ever since the EDC made this announcement, and I am proud to welcome Naomi Young to the EDC, and she is here and she is on the show. So, so Naomi, welcome, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me here. You guys didn't give me the warning that I needed my tweed jacket. Oh, do you have one? I do. How can I not? Well, you know, she's sitting next to me, and I didn't even recognize her as an economist because she's too stylishly dressed. It's not, it's not working with the stereotype that the I have. The truth is, John, we look like the economists. <laughs> right. She probably thought we were economists, maybe accountants. <laughs> well, it is all about perception. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, I'll tell you what. Let, let me start with the first question, and that is, can you tell us tell us what the EDC is, and also tell us why business owners in Lancaster uh, County should care about it. Okay, so the Economic Development Company of Lancaster County is based, it's a, it's a nonprofit for business, so it's not a government entity is probably the better way to put it. Okay. And their whole focus is to promote the business retention and expansion in Lancaster County. Well, now, like why that. do we, yeah, and why would we care about that? Because the more vital your businesses are, the more they grow, the better jobs we have, the more um, mental health benefits that we have. And it's a way to start thinking about how does Lancaster keep track with where the direction of a global economy and modernization is headed. Wow. Does Lancaster it? County and global economy? I, I like where this is going. It, it, it's only going to get better, I promise right. you. So uh, I want to get into your role at the EDC. Mm. So when people corner you at, you know, at the cocktail party and say, well, what does an economist do? Uh, what, what do you tell them? Oh, well, okay. So I start with the standard line, which is what you'd read in any textbook, which is that an economist helps you figure out how to allocate scarce resources. And you're probably glazing over at this point saying, what the heck does that mean? Um, and so... There's another aspect of that, which is if you think about it, all of us, everything that we want is limited. You know, nothing is infinite. And when we have to make choices about how to use our time, our money, our expertise, it's all scarce. It's all limited. And so we want to do it in a way that actually helps make us feel most satisfied. And economists put numbers to that so that we make it 
positive economics instead of normative economics. And what I mean by that is that we help formulate what is driving our choices, what we value, and how we want to make trade-offs to get there. You know, that's really fascinating. And John, you know, my, my next question, which, which I think Naomi just answered, which is, as marketers, we totally get finite resources, don't we? <laughs> Oh, absolutely. There's, I mean, it's marketing's all about finite resources, starting with uh, most marketing budgets. Yeah, most, but our, all of our budgets are related. Our times, uh, time obviously is a huge, huge, uh, finite resource that we have. Now, one of the things, and I, I want to dive right into this because I'm such a fan of the, of the stuff that comes out from Freakonomics, and I was thrilled when when you were coming on the program, Naomi. But broadly speaking, you know, I've been told that there's two schools of thought on economics. The first being that humans will behave rationally, and the second being that, well, they don't. And the most popular, you know, I think, Naomi, you shared this story with me about when you bought a cell phone. Share that story with me. <laughs> right. So, well, let me back up and first off say that it's really not that there's two schools of thought that people are rational or irrational. It's, it's really more of when can we figure out how to model the way people make decisions and the way somebody handles being um, thoughtful, mindful, methodical in their decisions we call rational. When they're impulsive, it would be irrational. And so it's really more about that rational thinking and mm -hmm. how do you handle having limited information. So my example is that um, I, I this is this is going to date me, but I needed a cell phone, and so I was trying to decide: do I get a BlackBerry or do I get an iPhone? And I was like, I know exactly what's going to drive my choices. I want it to be cheap. I want it to be really easy to type, and I want it to be able to to access my email really easily. Hands down, that meant I should get a BlackBerry. What did I buy? You got the iPhone. I got the iPhone because it was sexy, it was trendy, and it made me feel like I was on mark. So how does somebody like you even balance those, those two ideas then? then I mean, how, how do we, uh, as, as someone at the EDC where you're trying to support businesses, you know, what, how, do you, how do you put the data out there? What, 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 would, what would the economist have said about your decision? Um, it would say that I built a model to make my decisions incorrectly. So in other words, I omitted the variables that really mattered, or I didn't go through buying a cell phone enough times to actually know what my tastes and preferences were. Oh, that's so, fascinating. So it was misspecified. And I so this is, this is the part of like what makes economics interesting is that people are not irrational. We just don't know what drives their choices. Well, that's that has a close uh, relationship to marketing, too, yes. because some of some of the attributes that you described of the iPhone, um, some of those are a function of design for sure. But mm -hmm. but many of those are also a function of just great marketing. Uh, yeah. So marketing probably uh, drew your awareness of the iPhone and and marketing the perception that you had about the brand. It, it may have influenced your decision uh, about purchase in some way. Yep. And I just didn't go through buying a phone enough times to know what really mattered to me to influence that. And so, you know, so the marketing connection is really interesting because some of the, the there's a, a technique in economics to figure out what are the attributes and the values that we assign to them. It's called discrete choice or discrete choice experiments. And the idea is that you take a person through enough scenarios of choice that eventually you can figure out how they value each attribute. 
And guess what department at University of Pennsylvania picked up that technique and has a lot of those brilliant um, discrete choice? The economics department. No, marketing. marketing. The marketing department. Yes. Yes. Well, John, we're ahead of our time. We are. <laughs> I mean, that is so interesting. Again, it's related to marketing. We, I was just talking with um, one of my colleagues about mm -hmm. small businesses in Lancaster, and we were actually talking about plumbers, believe it or not. And we were talking about how plumbers could position themselves against the attributes that consumers uh, think about when choosing a plumber. Mm -hmm. And just to uh, bring it to the plumbing example, we were thinking being on time might be one, fixing it right the first time might be one. Uh, and there were others, and, and frankly, none of us knew for sure which attributes were strongest, but right. it sounds like we were sort of working through a, a similar process that an economist might think about. Yep. Absolutely. And so, you know, your your models are only as good as you can figure out what are the right attributes or variables to have in it. And so you're listing out all those things. But what do we know about behavior? Also, first impressions really matter. Mm -hmm. And so it could be that there's rationally, as we think rationally, like if you're just being like put aside all the emotional components of it, you would think all the things that you mentioned. But what are some of the other things? Maybe it's like how neat they look when they show up. Maybe it's how pleasant they are. Maybe it's the importance of a referral and a network. And so the issue is that we have to think critically. Are we considering all the different factors and then weeding through to find the most salient ones? Now, I want to I ask you a specific question. But you've said this a couple times now, which is how experienced somebody is with making a type of decision. Uh -huh. So that's something we deal with a lot in commercial construction, because guess mm -hmm. what, John? As much as I would love for people to be buying $20 million buildings all the time, they don't do it that often. So, so what advice would you give a marketer who sells a product or service where, by default, their customers don't have a lot of experience buying that? Right, so what you have to do is know what it is that gives people regret and educate them on it. Whoa, we got to talk about that. Let's talk about that. <laughs> know what gives people regret. Yeah. Mm. So think about it. You you know, when you go in and you buy a house, for example, I mean, when you, when you look at it, you're looking around, you're looking at the neighborhood, and you could actually, I'll give a story. So when I, um, when I was in college, I got this awesome apartment. It was this little one bed, well, actually it was a studio apartment, and it was a great part of town. It was walking distance of college. It was affordable. It was great, right? And it sat above... A bar um, and I thought oh that's great like this is really convenient easy it'll be you know wonderful right and I was I was so taken by like the location that I didn't actually realize that something that I thought was going to be good was actually bad never live above a bar <laughs> I, I've done that and had some rodent problems <laughs> yeah I had noise and then um, and then you know of course like you think about it and you like you look out your window and you're like oh okay this is a good view and, and it's amazing what we're selective on. And so what did I fail to notice? What was behind my building? Train tracks. Mm. So not only did I have a bar emptying garbage at 2.30 in the morning, mm. but I also had the trains running at night. And they usually run at night because they don't want to close the roads, right? So, I, I mean, I thought I was being so smart in my selection, but I didn't actually know what to look for. Now, what you just said there, and, and this, is, this is actually a big idea, John, and I really want, I want to unpack this one a little bit. So... So know what gives people regret. I mean, truthfully, John, a lot of marketers don't do that. We're selling on the positive. Yeah. 
So, so tell me a little bit more. So, so are you, are, and, and for years I went to Sandler sales. I've got a lot of history with, with Sandler and Sandler's got some negative, negative selling techniques. Are, um, are you saying that I should be digging into negative aspects of not, of not buying my product or service, perhaps more than promoting the positive? No, I think you, you condition or you position your positive, your, you position it in the positive. So what I'm saying is that like, you would tell a person, you know, one of the things that our customers often don't think about is X, Y, and Z, these factors. And more often than not, when they don't consider them, they're disappointed in their choices. So here's the way you want to think about that. And you want to just position it so it's, it's constructive, not negative and smearing. Does that make sense? That is very and cool. It's, it's about teaching people to learn from your mistakes. Mm -hmm. And we all intuitively understand that. And I mean, nobody feels better than saying, aha, I know I'm not going to make the mistake that person did. <laughs> yeah. Well, now, I, I bet as an economist, you're good at, at gathering information. And, you know, we're talking about uh, consumer choice, which mm -hmm. is critical to marketing and planning marketing campaigns. And one of the things that we, we sometimes have the luxury of relying on, not always, is, is research. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, let's be honest. I mean, sometimes we're making it up. Sometimes we're, we're using our best uh, judgment as to what maybe the leading points of regret might be or the right. positive attributes of a product. But in the best cases, we're using research. Now, maybe you can tell us a little bit about your knowledge of research. What's, what's a good way to learn about um, some of these selling points? And, and before she answers this, I know she knows this, John, because I shared a survey with her, and she polite a survey that I had written, by the okay. way. And she politely came up with some really good things that I needed to, to reconsider. All right. So I know you've got a lot of opinions. Oh, that's really kind. Oh, so, so, <laughs> but, so let's start there. Um, Right. Let's start with the simplest one. Uh, lots of times marketers are deciding, do I do quantitative analysis or qualitative analysis? So for those who are, who are listening, quantitative is where I'm asking uh, a finite list of answers to a lot of people. Qualitative is sitting across from somebody. You know, how should I think about using quantitative or qualitative? Um, it should never be either or. It should always be both. So the, the challenge is knowing your budget and thinking about how much certainty or how comfortable you are in um, in in the rigor and the certainty of your analyses or your findings. So what I say by that is, um, I used to do a lot of survey research, and and um, you would you would you know you go online, you do your research, you think you know what's going on, and we would we would, uh, in particular this was park visitation studies, and so we would do these. We'd look at the GIS and the maps, and we'd figure out where we're going to be able to intercept people. And you think you have the best design survey ever and the best strategy for capturing your your respondents, and then you go and you actually walk it, and mm. you go on the ground, okay. and it's never what you think. You know, paper and reality is never the same thing. You never go and do. Uh, a paper survey or you know an in-person survey without having actually talked and done a little bit of a focus group first. I mean you have to test language. We know that language is so important. You have to make sure that you know what you think the you know oftentimes what we hear is what percolates up through the noise and so what you you know you have to have these in-depth discussions and explorations to understand is that really what's mattering or is that just in the noise is it your red herring and so you have to do the qualitative first well let me let me share a, a story that's been going around the marketing world for years and I'd like mm -hmm. to get your perspective on it so it relates to research so the research was being done by I believe the company was the parent company of raid mm -hmm. 
and they were doing a focus group on pest control. Mm -hmm. um, and so they had a group of um, women, uh, they had chosen to do it with women, sitting in a focus group, and the moderator asked them a bunch of questions, and they politely answered, and so it went. At the end of the focus group, one of the women came up to the moderator privately and said, I gotta be honest with you, I like seeing them die. <laughs> and she was talking about <laughs> bugs because she had this visceral reaction. They have invaded my home. They are in my food. I hate them, and I like seeing them die. Yes. And that was an insight that this person had been embarrassed to share publicly with mm -hmm. the rest of the focus group respondents. Mm -hmm. um, and Raid ended up doing more research on that and found that that was one very critical emotional trigger related to purchase, and it led to the campaign Kills Bugs Dead. Yeah. And, and, I, and, I, and you, you're, you're talking about Raid, and I'm, and I'm picturing the can, and, and I, I believe the bug is lying right. on its back. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking, like, I spray a bug, and I don't want it to go run off and die in a corner someplace that I never find again, right? I want right. to clean it up right away. So, so when you talk about mm. survey design, then, I guess mm -hmm. one of the things that we get into is, is um, you know, how do you figure out if, if somebody's given you the honest answer? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's quite a lot of studies in that space, and so this is where I say know your research and trust the, the researcher that you hire. I mean, there's a really rich, robust literature on the types of biases that come from um, how you solicit the, the responses. So, I mean, we know that there's a thing called social desirability bias, which you're talking about, which is that... Um, you know, you, you want to say the answer that you think makes you look most favorable. Mm. And so there's all kinds of strategies to try to minimize that bias. And it might be that, um, you know, depending on your type of budget and who your population is or how well it's studied, you can transfer some of the, the, the past knowledge. But, you know, you want to know, like, is, is this the kind of thing where people like, are going to feel a little bit embarrassed to say and so maybe having a big focus group or isn't the right way or maybe you do it in more strategic ways with smaller more knit safer settings sure yeah i mean i think they realized probably that they hadn't um, planned the right type of research they probably did one-on-ones after mm -hmm. that and said maybe yeah. we'll get more honest um, right. answers for the very reason you just described yeah I'm curious, you, you know, you, you mentioned bias. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, one of the things that I think guys like us always wonder is, okay, I want to do a survey. Do I send out the survey? How much bias am I introducing because, mm -hmm. it, because it's, it's the company owning it? So, you know, a classic example that we get all the time is, I mean, we're getting emails from Amazon all the time now, you know, do, do you like this product? Do you, do you like mm -hmm. the service? Can you talk a little bit about um, when the brands try to do the survey themselves, is that a big red flag or are there ways to, to, to kind of design around it? You know, I'm not sure. I mean, it, it, my experience has been that um, it really depends on the nature of what you're doing, asking about. And so um, having the perception of legitimacy is important. Um, giving, give, in, ensuring that people believe that the what they're voicing is going to be heard and valued is important as well. And you know, I would say that, like, you know, can a company go and do the survey themselves? Depends on whether what kind of relationship they have with their customers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Marcus, let me. We're about at the midpoint. Why don't we take a short break? Um, and this this has been 
a lot more interesting than I thought it would be. And I'm glad we have an economist on the show. This is fascinating. But let's, let's take a short break. We'll come back and we'll talk more about economics, small business, decision-making, and why economics really matters to marketers. You've been listening to the Special Economics Update, brought to you by Benchmark Construction. Now, back to the show. Hey, we are thrilled to have you back to uh, Marketing with Walker and Grimm. I'm Marcus Grimm. John Walker's here with me, and we are having a blast with Naomi Young from the EDC. We were talking about biases um, uh, prior to the break, and I just have to ask this question. Uh, There's so many biases out there. I actually have a chart uh, hanging on my office. I I forget how many different biases are there. But I'm curious, Naomi, because you've been doing this for, for so long, do you have a favorite bias or a most frustrating bias that you 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 love to find a way to design around or one that just always trips you up so i you're going to be disappointed in my answer i don't i mean to me the thing about the survey research that i love more than anything is thinking about what's that clever way to trap your respondents so they have to answer so they so they so right you know so it's where can you intercept them that Mm -hmm. they're going to be most receptive to engaging in it because the thing that there's nothing worse than having a low response rate on your survey research you know you can put you can spend just a ton of money trying to 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 send it out and to get those responses and then when you don't get it it's just what do you do is there an answer to the question what is a low response rate? I mean, is, is, is there a number that makes you cringe, or, or is the answer to that question, it depends? It's always it depends. Okay. Um, you know, so, so the conventions, they change by different types, of, um, sur- um, different types of modes for doing your surveys, what's considered a low response rate. And so, you know, there's, there's two things going on. I mean, one is, is your low response rate, and then the other aspect of it is just do you have enough respondents to make your, your results statistically significant? So we care about the low response rate because it means that are you having some type of selection bias in, in who's responding? So even if you have a good sample size, you, you know, maybe you just missed out on an entire portion mm-hmm. of the population that's relevant. Mm-hmm. Let me ask a question relate, on behalf of our listeners who may be smaller businesses or you know, are, are busy running their businesses mm-hmm. and uh, don't have time or resources for really comprehensive research, but, but want to do some basic research to understand their audiences and their customers better. Mm-hmm. Can you, can you uh, direct us to some sort of more basic and maybe quicker techniques that could be used to get that information? Yeah, so I, I, the first thing I would say is don't ask an open-ended question. Okay. You know, the more that you can standardize and tick the box, the easier it is to do the analysis. Okay. Um, we always go into this idea that we'll ask an open-ended question, and then we're going to analyze that information. It's going to be really insightful and interesting, and the reality is you never have time to do it. That's mm. happened to me, John. Okay. <laughs> Guilty. <laughs> Says the guy who has has a list of favorite biases <laughs> hanging from his office wall. I'm not surprised. You know, the other thing that I would say is that, um, you know, think really critically to make sure that you're asking the, the questions you need, not the question you think might be interesting later on. Okay. Um, I mean, we always think about, oh, this is our one-time chance to do that. But if you're a small business, your customers come through the door all the time. You can continue to do it. And so I would say um, simple Quick questions, um, no more than 10. Um, really think about whether or not you need all that information or just a couple of points. And then know how much you want to be, um, how much certainty you want in that. So, you know, 
the timing of when you ask your survey questions will really matter. So make sure you get it at the right time. And, um, and then just realize that y your customers are always coming through the door. You can have many shots at them. Okay. That's really good advice. It, I, it I, is. That, that's outstanding. And, you know, I'm, I'm the guy who was wondering about what relation does an economist have with marketing advice. And now I'm seeing those connections. So I mentioned this conversation that we were having about plumbing businesses in Lancaster. Mm -hmm. So if I'm a plumbing business and I'm going to be spending money behind advertising, I want to be sure that my message is on point. I want to be sure that my message is addressing real consumer concerns. And I think what I'm hearing you say is there are some relatively simple ways that I could use research to learn that. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, everybody thinks economists are about money. Mm -hmm. And that's that's not what we're about. Okay. We're, we're Our most valuable resources are oftentimes we translate them into money, but it's not the money itself. So it's our time. Mm -hmm. It's... Um, it's it's it, things like clean air or clean water. It's like the availability of open space. It could be our home. I mean, some type of asset. So it's not about the money. It's about how we choose to use what we have. And I, that that's going to lead us into um, a, a question that's uh, that's more directly involved with your role at the EDC. Mm -hmm. But I, I we've got her on the stage, John. So I'm gonna I'm gonna All ask right, her one more specific it. one. In, in my world, the B2B world, we spend a lot of time on win-loss analysis. We love to sit yeah. down with people and say, why did you buy from us? Why didn't you buy from us? Mm -hmm. And I've always wondered how trustworthy that information is. Are, are, we, are, we, um, are we trustworthy when it comes time to, saying, to analyzing our own decision-making process? Mm. Um, I don't know. I would, but I, where I thought you were going with that question was um, thinking about the world in a simple dichotomy of a yes, no is okay. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. What we have to do is make sure that we understand that relative to what the full set of choices are. And Huge so, point there. That's yeah. great. So, you know, yes, no is fine if you understand that, that that is insightful only to the extent that you've constrained it within that yes, no. Right. Whereas those of us who are in competitive industries, you know, it, what, it, what it might look like, it, it, it's not a no, it's just less of a yes than the choice that they went with. Right, and, and more often than not, we may, what we should be really thinking about, well, what were their other choices? Outstanding. Let me, let me ask a question about resources, because you mm -hmm. brought up the question of resources. So you've, you've been in Lancaster a relatively short amount of time. You come mm -hmm. here with a perspective brought from someone who lives in, in other places. So you have kind of a fresh view of, of this place we call home, uh, this place where we do business. What's, uh, what resources do you see that you think are valuable to Lancaster and particularly to uh, business people in Lancaster? Yeah, first, two things jump out at me. First and foremost, foremost scale, and the second is location. Okay. Um, so, I mean, we, we tend to think of Lancaster as like small town, and I mean, certainly our boroughs and our townships are small. Lancaster City is relatively big. But what's really unique about Lancaster is that um, it is a county with a, a central city and its own MSA, which means that there's a rich amount of data, and being its own MSA means that it, it also has a certain amount of um, mass in its economic activity to make it register and be you can measure it. And so when you look at, um, in the United States, we have things called um, 
metropolitan statistical areas, and they're like basically kind of key population economic centers around the world, I mean, around the U.S. And there's about 360 plus or minus. Um, and the populations in those MSAs range from like 18, 19, 20 million down to like 52,000. And Lancaster ranks around 96th out of all of those. So it's actually a fairly large MSA. Wow. Um, now, granted, the, the you know the top the the top like twenty are all million plus MSAs, but I mean th- this is fairly large. This is not an insignificant market, so aggregation is not as much of a challenge if you think about it. Okay, right. Um, and you know the other the other really unique strength I think about Lancaster or uh, undervalued is is its proximity to other markets. So when I say that, you know, this is a fairly large MSA, it's also within really close distances to three of the lar- three of the of the top 10 MSAs, three of them are really close by. So it's DC, Philadelphia, and New York. So you have this access to incredible markets. Baltimore Townsend unbelievably is also, I shouldn't say unbelievably, is surprisingly also a really large MSA. So you have this this like you know the logistics the the reach is not as challenging as other other regional economies in the u s very cool um, now i want I want the listeners you have uh, uh, you have given us so much as as I knew you would mm-hmm. um, we've got so much great information here, but I, I do want listeners to have a good feel on what the heck are you going to be doing at the EDC? Because you clearly could do a lot of things. So let's talk about. I know, uh, I know from from speaking with you and Lisa. You know, you've got you've got a couple uh, low hanging fruit or big initiatives. You know, what are you guys going to be really digging into over the next six to twelve months? Yeah. So our starting point is to really just map the Lancaster economy. So, and when I say Lancaster, what I mean is the um, the Lancaster County and its surrounding region, and is to understand. What actually are the businesses and the industry sectors that are here, and how much do they contribute to the economy? Not terms, not just in terms of like economic activity, but also in terms of jobs, in terms of their interconnectedness to other sectors and other regions around the U.S. And then to start thinking about how those different sectors use the assets and the infrastructure that's in Lancaster, and how reliant are they on each other? So the idea is that we start moving from the side from what we believe Lancaster's economy to be, to actually having a common foundation of shared knowledge about what really is here. So it's very similar to, to the old management uh, maxim. We can't, we can't manage what we don't measure. Right. So, so you're here originally to measure. Yes. So we start with, it's, it's taking it all into the positive economics, which means that we say what is here, and we as the center does not provide judgment on that. I mean, our judgment only extends to, extends to saying, well, you know, the data is really good data or it's bad data because it has these problems. Um, the precision of what we're, we're estimating is fuzzy or it's sharp. So we characterize that, but, you know, questions about, like, is this – is this a good economy or a bad economy? That's not our space. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Marcus, I know that there's a question that you're dying to ask. Now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, 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 just so the listeners know, I mean, this is this is a, this is a very well engineered show, and, and John and I do share notes back and forth, and 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 he said, uh, Marcus, I don't think this question really fits, and I said, John, I got an economist on the show. So, for my final question, um, and it really doesn't have much to do with marketing, perhaps. But, you know, 
what I'm really curious about, and you did such a great job of helping us understand, you know, that, that you're basically looking at resources. And of course, one of those resources is money. And of course, today we're all hearing about Bitcoin. We're all hearing about cryptocurrency and how it's going to change the world. And, you know, uh, my favorite quote about uh, money, I, I think it was Ben Franklin, who said, you know, the thing about money is it's cloth to a man who needs cloth and it's corn to a man who needs corn. So I'm just curious, as you begin to look at crypto, do any of our fundamental thoughts about money change? I mean, if I guess my point is, is if I go into the if I go into the press room next door and they're taking Bitcoin next week, does that fundamentally change anything from an economist perspective? So I don't feel that it does. Um, I mean, this is an emerging area of research, and there's there's a lot more to be determined. But I, uh, my sense is that it, the the coin has as much values as it provides um, certainty. And so a lot of the structure around the the Bitcoin is to have this portable ledger. So you know you don't you you're minimizing the risk of of double use, and it so so the value is going to be. Um, do you do you feel like it's is it is is it certain? Can we use it? And I think what's really interesting about it is that as we move into more and more of a virtual world, um, this is a this is a. a currency that could squeeze out the middleman. So, you know, it squeezes out the PayPal's, it squeezes out the the um, credit card companies. Um, and you could think of it really is in in when they're talking about how much is the the currencies selling for like Bitcoin. I mean, you think about it just in the same way that we trade currency currencies mm -hmm. and we hedge our risk about how prices and, and the value of that currency fluctuates. So I don't think so at this point. It lacks regulation though. And um, so the question will be, how much does regulation change the way that this is, um, this currency can operate um, independently? And, you know, that's part of that beauty of that ledger that flows with it. That's actually kind of fascinating. How does an economist look at regulation? I mean, so, so you're talking about things uh, like, you know, uh, zoning. So, you know, can we add this type of business there? I mean, right. how do you add... Is, right. is regulation a part of what you do? Regulation is a big part of some of the, the economic literature. And I think that the way economists have typically tackled that is to say, do you put regulation in place to alleviate or mitigate market failures in whatever is being traded? And what I mean by that is, can you assign property values to it? Um, how much information is needed in order to, to make sure that the, the exchange is done on a, a, a common, full information set? Um, do you have uneven market powers being monopolies or, or, um, or of that sort? So. I mean, I think that's how we think about it. It's just in Australia, it's a little bit different in how. So I'm just going to give you a quick. So in the United States and Australia, um, the way that we approach thinking about what's the appropriate level of regulation is really different. And so in in the United States, we tend to really focus on like, does the regulation get you over a benefit cost ratio where the benefits outweigh the costs, and um, and you're not doing too much harm to small business. In Australia, we frame the right the regulatory analysis very differently. It's to say that, first off, is there a market failure that actually warrants government intervention um, to support the regulation? Then the second question is, what is the appropriate form of regulation? So is it something where if you just allow industry to self-regulate, 
um, or some kind of common agreement, is that adequate or do you have to actually have the command and control? And so you think about the different stringencies of which to achieve the structure that helps alleviate market failures and replicate a competitive market. Got it. Um, and I think that that approach is is, um, is more true to economic thinking. Mm-hmm. That makes total sense. Let me ask a follow-up question related to the currency, mm-hmm. now that Marcus has uh, <laughs> raised the subject. So I heard that Ithaca, New York, has a local currency, um, and it's a currency that can only be spent uh, at businesses in Ithaca, New York. Um, and, and strangely, on a smaller scale, I know that on the campus of Franklin and Marshall College, they have their own currency called Ben's Bucks. Uh, <laughs> uh, and those, those bucks can only be you know, used on certain uh, commodities on the campus. And, so, and just equal time, there's Marauder Bucks over at, over at okay. Millersville as well. So, so, yeah, I've seen it on college campuses, but never in Ithaca. Right, right. So, uh, you know, and, and Ithaca is doing it be, probably not unlike Lancaster in that they value small businesses business, they mm-hmm. want to keep economic activity localized. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what's your view of that kind of approach? I think it's interesting. It's really, um, I want to say it's innovative, but it's not. I mean, it's going back to our roots of like a barter system, right? right? right. I mean, if you think about it, there are, there are many economies in the U.S. that are larger than other countries. Mm-hmm. And so um, if they can support the scale and the transaction costs are low enough, why not? Outstanding. Well, we're nearly done here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw in one more question. <laughs> I asked you about your biases. You didn't have a favorite bias for uh-huh. me. But I do know that some economists have a favorite leading indicator, just a little thing that, that, that's out there that when the economy does this, it, it means something. Do you have a favorite leading indicator you can give us? Oh. Um, uh, let, me, let me, as you think that one through, I'll, I'll give John an example. So we have, a, we have a senior estimator benchmark. He's been there a very, very long time. And he, he's funny because... One of the ways he's a hawk when the when the data comes out on the raw price of gypsum. Okay. Because through the years, you know, gypsum is a key ingredient into drywall. Right. And so it, it's just one of those things when the new data comes out from the government, he goes right to the sure. to the gypsum price. So I'm just curious if there's a and or maybe since you've come to Lancaster, a leading indicator that you've been thinking about is is there one you can share with us? I don't have one. It's so specific to what you're studying. So yeah. gypsum makes a lot of sense if you're in the commercial construction Absolutely. business. Absolutely. Right. Um, you know, if you're thinking about household consumption and spending, it's probably waste generation. Yeah. I mean, I was a product manager for products that were made out of plastic, you know, which is derived from oil. Mm-hmm. So we were mm-hmm. closely tracking oil prices. Mm-hmm. So, so I, you're I, an old oil and gas guy. Well, yeah. Not anymore. <laughs> Yeah. Um, bicycle. Everything by bicycle now. Outstanding. Yeah. yeah. Outstanding. Well, look, that that is bringing us to the end of our show. And this has been a real pleasure. Naomi, we appreciate you coming on the show. Absolutely. Um, I, I have to admit, you know, I was really an economist. I, I was a little skeptical. <laughs> but I am so pleased that you've come to talk to us. I'm pleased that you've... Um, joined uh, the EDC in Lancaster, and, and we're hearing that you're doing great work there. And, and EDC is very easy to spell, uh, but but just in case, uh, what, what is the website? Do you know? Is it EDC Lancaster? EDCLancaster.com. Or .org or .com? .com. It is a .com. Okay. It is a .com. EDCLancaster.com mm-hmm. uh, to, to learn more about uh, Naomi and Lisa and everything else the team's doing over there. 
That's great. And, and while you're on the internet, you can listen to all of our shows at lmpmediagroup.com. You can subscribe to hear our podcast at iTunes and Google Play. Uh, and if you've got ideas or, or want to send us feedback, please email us at jwalker at lnpnews.com. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>